Ashley, welcome to the future of fashion business. Thanks for being on. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I like the energy, by the way. Are you used to doing uh, podcast episodes yourself? You know what? I'm not, but I would say I'm a very high energy person for better or worse. So this Mm. is the sort of thing that I actually get a lot of energy on. It's one of the things that, you know, if you were to look at the bright side of what came out of the pandemic, um, it, it really enabled a long term and I would say um, long distance digital connection in a way that was totally normal, right? So pre-pandemic, if you really weren't, you know, seeing people in person, doing an, a physical coffee, a physical recording, it was sort of like there wasn't a ton of permission to do that sort of outreach to people. I feel like the one thing that the pandemic unlocked is all of the ways that exist for people across the world to connect digitally, which is actually one of the interesting things about how I got reconnected with, you know, the co-founder of, of Noteworthy, my business partner. But I, I, I just feel really excited that um, I'm able to spend time with people when I work remote um, in ways that still feel like connection when we're not in a physical place. Yeah, I like that. I mean, it definitely makes my job easier. So uh, yeah, <laughs> so I appreciate it. Uh, awesome. And let's see, just for the listeners at home that don't know anything about who you are and what you do, can you just give us a very brief introduction? Yeah. So um, my name is Ashley Boyce. I'm the chief marketing officer and co-founder of Noteworthy Sense. Um, and we're a D2C fragrance company. But I think that using that explanation probably minimizes what we're all about, which is, you know, at Noteworthy, we're really dedicated to solving the problem of how to easily and enjoyably find a perfume that you love. Um, And what gets me excited about what we do is that we're doing something really fundamentally different in this space, which is using AI to help create personalized fragrance experiences for our customers that address the pain points that we know really exist in the shopping experience for fragrance, Um, which for me is sort of really exciting because as a marketer at heart, you know, you do your best work when you're really focused on what customers want and need. And so I think for us, being able to bring a solution that we know, you know, surprises and delights our customers um, is something I feel, you know, really proud of from our, from a business perspective. Interesting. And would you say is, is, because I mean, you're a marketing, by a marketer by trade and as entrepreneurs, we tend to focus on what we're good at, right? Uh, would you say Noteworthy is predominantly a marketing company at this stage or is it a product development company? What is, what is the focus or is that, has it been a mixture of both? Yeah. And, and interestingly enough, um, because my background is actually in CPG, I don't draw a line of differentiation for those because Mm. I I spent 14 years, most of my career working at Unilever and in the personal care division there and in Canada where I'm from and in the U S And a lot, one of the great things about working in CPG, in most CPG companies, I should say, is marketing is really, you know, the heartbeat of the organization, right? Business management sits under the marketing function. Product development sits under the marketing function. Brand building sits under the marketing function. Media and, you know, go-to-market strategy sit under the marketing function. And so when I look at what we've been able to build with Noteworthy, Um, I think it's a really beautiful combination. And when I think about products, um, you know, now having spent a couple of years in the digital space, moving from being more sort of like CPG oriented or traditionally CPG oriented product can really mean two things, right? It can mean the physical thing that we sell, which I'm very proud of. And it can also be the digital experience that we sell, right? And then the mark, I think, in my opinion, marketing sort of crosses and wraps all of those things up. And it's then how we find our customers, deliver a meaningful message to them, get them to the site and give them a beautiful experience because ultimately our site is our showroom. It's our store, right? And that's our phys- that's our digital physical storefront. And then really deliver something when they get it in the mail that is an experience worthy of um, what they think they're getting when they when they come to Noteworthy. So I, I really see all those things as being intertwined and mm. not really separate. Right. And when you think about, I, I guess, what how would you redefine marketing as? If you could redefine marketing a couple of words, because I think marketing is 
people have this 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 association with marketing as getting attention. Um, but with your experience and your definition, how will you define marketing, especially today? I would, yeah, I was gonna say I actually think marketing is about creating connection. Um, and I, that's where I say, like, I think all the things that I mentioned that I personally think sit under marketing as tactics, functions, you know, however you want to define those, um, those all have to ladder up to creating a connection with customers. Mm -hmm. And the way you create a connection with customers in my experience is you understand what they want, what their needs are, either something that they have a problem with or something that they're lacking or something maybe they didn't know that they need that you can be doing better. And then you figure out how to address that in a way that create not only addresses the need, but if you do it really well, goes above and beyond and makes you something that really customers can't live without. And if you manage to create that connection, um, not only are you doing your job as a marketer, but it also means you can continue to serve your customers better. And, you know, one of the things that I think I've been really um that has really opened my eyes now that I'm in the D to C space is if you're creating meaningful connections with your customers, you're doing all the things that I mentioned, right? You're meeting their needs. You're creating a product worthy of what they want. You're creating an experience that customers find um, meaningful, but then you're actually going back out and you're talking to customers and you're figuring out what do they love about what you're bringing them? What do they not love about what you're bringing them? What are you missing in this experience so that you can go back and do all those things even better over and over again? And that for me is really what, what marketing is about. I think, you know, historically before we had um, a lot of this two-way connection where it was a traditionally like, um, if I think about marketing, I don't know. 10 years ago, even 15 years ago, it, it was one to many, right? One being the brand talking to many people. And now the connections really need to be or feel much more one-to-one, -one, either between you and your customers. And frankly, in today's world, it's one-to-one -one with a brand and customers, but frankly, also one-to-one -one with customers and other customers, because we all know that the reality is in a digital world where a lot of social currency comes from sharing. Um, the more you can provide your customers with value in that way, the more connection you create with them. And then you provide other ways for them to connect with other people. Sure, you you leverage their connection. Exactly. So it's almost like con emotional connection arbitrage through value creation. <laughs> Well, I was the arbitrage almost sounds like um, we're, you know, we're taking over. I think the idea is in a... In a pre-digital world, um, brands really felt like they had sort of ownership over their own brand and, you know, you're making all the decision. I don't think we live in that bubble anymore, right? Mm -hmm. I think you need to have a point of view as a brand and you need to define what you stand for and what you mean and you need to be unwavering in that. But I really think now um, the reality is it's also how consumers define your brand, right? So how you show up for them, how you interact with them, how you serve them. And so that's where I think like that, that connection piece becomes much more meaningful now than maybe it had been historically. Mm, right. And now that you've seen how, you know, marketing has evolved over the years, would you say that connection is the one variable that will always be the benchmark, the essence of marketing, regardless of technology and its evolutions and uh, cultural differences, et cetera, et cetera. That's a, ooh, that's a great question. Um, I'd say it's going to be a key differentiator for winners in any space, right? Mm -hmm. So you could have a really like awesome product, a product that delivers exactly what someone wants. It's superior technology. It's delightful packaging. It's um, the best formula you could ever come up with, and, and regardless of the space. And if you're not creating desire, drive, connection with customers, it's not going to sell. It's not going to flow, right? And so that's where I think like, but on the flip side, you could be connecting, talking with customers and having an inferior product that's not meeting any of their needs. And therefore the connection's not there anyway, because you're not actually delivering what your customers want. And mm. so for me, it's sort of like, 
the key thing you're going to need to survive going forward as any brand in any business, frankly, B2B or B2C is make sure you have that connection loop that informs your product roadmap, your brand strategy, your, I mean, even things like customer service, the way you service your customers, where mm-hmm. you want to talk to them, how you want to talk to them. To me, that's like the key differentiator in, in brands that sort of stand alone versus stand the test of time. Mm, interesting. And how can early entrepreneurs, and this is something that you probably relate with, deal with the challenges of doing those two things extremely well at the very beginning when there's no time, there's no resources to do it? Because I mean, do, getting one of those things right, getting the experience or the connection with your customer right is extremely difficult. Getting a really good product is extremely difficult. And the only the only thing that's more difficult than one extremely difficult thing is two extremely difficult things. So what can founders do nowadays? Because it's a it's a difficult it's a difficult challenge. I totally agree with you. And um, so again, this is like I think maybe what makes what makes my experience a little bit different than many other other entrepreneurs is I I grew up in a company where I was never allowed to talk one on one really with a customer unless it was a prearranged focus group where we'd been vetted, they'd been vetted. Like if I think about, you know, the world of CPG, you're doing a lot of things at scale. And one of the things I love about being a founder um, and working on a much smaller scale is that you can go out and just find like I get emails every day. I read every single customer service email that comes in um, to our company. I still do that because they come to me and I get to read them. And what I think is really exciting is you don't need to do everything at scale. And I think a number of the people that you've had on um, the podcast have talked about the importance of sort of like MVP, going to get early feedback from customers. I don't think everything needs to be perfect, right? So if I think about the product development process um, and was it... um, Ministry of Style that you had on the gentleman. Minister of Supply. Yeah, yeah. Minister of Supply. Apologies. Um, he talks a lot about sort of like the the uh, lengths that they went to in their product roadmap to get really really strong product, which I thought was awesome. But he also talked about like going out to talk to people as they were going through that iteration, and that's where I think not everything has to be done. You don't need to have a focus group of a hundred people where you're sort of getting quantitative data. I think we can go and talk to people in our everyday lives, talk to people who leave comments on our Facebook group, get early feedback so that you're doing more things at an MVP level so that as you're starting to build what your end product is, you're getting feedback early and quickly before you do a ton of investment. Like I'll give you an example on Noteworthy, when we were sort of first looking at what did we want to build as the fragrance portfolio um, to make sure that as we were solving the problem around helping people find a fragrance they love, which is the digital product that we do, we were actually creating really outstanding fragrances. We sent out over 50,000 samples to a group of like, I think it was 100 or 200 men and women that we just had signed up on Facebook. And we sent mass market perfumes that were already existing. We sent um, then mods of our own perfumes that we developed. And we did all of this before we produced a single fragrance. Um, and we were doing that, you know, in in my uh, business partner's garage, he was sort of doing all those samples and sending them out. And that definitely took time and resource, but I think it was what we needed to do as we were building the product roadmap to feel a confident that this idea was going to work, but B get feedback in an early scrappy way before we then went to our fragrance house and said, great, now we're ready to go all in. We're ready to order and produce. We have high confidence levels that this is the right portfolio for us to have a a wide reach of customers and deliver on what they think to be a superior fragrance experience, which frankly, like we would never have done if we were in a place where we were sort of like big company infrastructure, where there's just so much more, um, required rigor uh, that goes in before any key decisions are made. Hmm. Interesting. And how do you approach, because I'm, I'm trying to understand, uh, especially with direct-to-consumer products, whether it be fashion, whether it be beauty-related, uh, the, the barrier of entry is continuously decreasing, so it's easier to get started. 
but the barrier from getting nothing into getting a product that works or getting a product that is selling or that has that connection keeps getting more difficult and more difficult. Um, the quality of your product needs to get better. The quality of your marketing keeps needs to keep improving. And as a founder, you're stuck in this place where, okay, I can get a website, right? That's not a problem. I can maybe get a couple of prototypes, right. but I can't, I can't get, I can't get a business to start running because I need to be either extremely good at product, either extremely good at community. I'm competing with people that maybe have been doing this for 30 years, or I'm competing with brands that have $5 million on the bank, right? So what do you think is the potential solution for this position? Is it is it something that needs to be solved by people understanding how to leverage partnerships and people that can do things better than them and maybe negotiating percentages when 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 there's no money to actually start do anything now? So what what do you think is a potential solution for founders out there? Yeah, and I'm probably not going to answer this the way that you want. So feel free to to probe me and push me further because I think like I almost separate sort of two things, which is one is in an, in a place where the barrier to entry is so low, how do you get out there and create something meaningful when you're competing with all these big brands, which doesn't, which that's more the like what than the how. And to me, the key thing that makes a winning D to C business and a winning, frankly, new business in this market is to do something better than the competition or different that's that's addressing a consumer need that hasn't been met. And that's one of the things that with Noteworthy gave us a lot of confidence. There are, I don't know how many fragrance companies that exist, right? It's actually not that hard to start a fragrance company. In theory, you could go and buy some essential oils and mix them yourself, pour them in a bottle and say, I'm, I'm selling fragrance. We didn't want to do that. What we wanted to do was less about selling um, fragrance, which ultimately is the end product we sell, but was more about we recognize through the you know hundreds of customers that we talked to that um, there was an unmet need in terms of helping people shop, helping people find something that they want. So ultimately, that's what we set out to do is making that experience experience much better. And then of course, making sure that we had beautiful fragrances that when we actually solve sort of the customer problem of finding a fragrance you love um, in a way in sort of a business model that allows people to try at home, which we know is important, spend time with the fragrances that was important, not invest right up front a ton of money, which was really important while also having great fragrances. Um, that was really the reason that we felt confident entering a market where there's a lot of competition, both at a sort of like indie niche house level, but also at a macro, you know, the, the, your major CPG players in this space who I won't name, um, who, you know, they're not $5 million in the bank, they're you know, 50 billion euros in the bank or whatever it is. I think on, on the other side to sort of answer your question and like, um, so then let's say you've got a really great business idea. You think you've got a good, you know, sort of proof of principle technology that you think is going to win, that you think is differentiated, that you think is going to fill an unmet consumer need that exists. Then how do you go about doing it? Because it's, I think like for, for us, one of the, the hardest parts about going to market was, um, frankly, operationally, minimum order quantities, right? Like that's actually like to create something and produce product requires capital. And that's where I think sort of looking at what does MVP look like? So if you're sort of a roadmap from selling zero to selling 10 to selling 100 to selling 1,000, mapping out what is a, a feasible MVP look like for you to really test and ensure you've got product market fit from a delivery perspective, making sure you've worked out the kinks in your experience, because at the end of the day, branding is one part, but making sure you've got like, even operationally, does your site work? Does your email flows work? All the things you need to do to generate a business before you then go out and figure out how you're going to raise capital in an environment where not a lot of people want to invest capital right now. Um, all those things at an MVP level, I think help prepare you to then go out and figure out, okay, now I'm at a point where I need to raise money. I think a lot of people think they need to be all in right in the beginning. 
um, building these large businesses. But the reality is because that barrier to entry is so low, particularly on like the website piece, if you can figure out what MVP looks like on the product side to get sort of proof of principle learnings before you scale up, you're in a great place to build a long-term business as long as what you're doing is addressing um, something better or different than what already exists. Mm. So the barrier of entry from a front end or from a marketing and sales perspective has decreased. So the biggest point of of differentiator that you can leverage is from a product perspective and understanding what to work on from a product perspective will come from understanding the customer base and what's a very specific segment of the customer needs that is not being met by the competitors that have the skill sets, the expertise, the resources, et cetera, et cetera. And if you position yourself that way, you don't have to be the best on the short term. Yeah. And I think it's, it's like product is one element, but to me, it's all about like it's it's experience and products a bit can be a big part of that, particularly if all you do is sell product. And there's a number of companies where like they have one product, it's their hero product and that's what they deliver. But the reality is their product works better, how they sell the product works better. That's how people end up coming back. And to me, it's making sure you've got all those things. But again, going back to sort of like, how do you get started in the beginning? I don't think you need to have everything figured out. You need to have the most important pieces figured out, which are what does your customer want from you and how are you delivering it in a way that feels better or different than what they're used to. Hmm. Interesting. And when thinking about the connection that is required for that relationship, what do you think is the best way to create that connection now? Is it still is it still digital? Has the aggressive digital push made in-person things a little bit more valuable? Because I'm, I'm assuming it's also a, a relationship that always changes. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think it's, I, I'm less worried in general about whether it's digital or whether it's physical and more about how how personalized does the connection feel? And what's great is there are lots of tools in the digital space that enable personalized connection, but the reality is that's what people expect, right? People expect they leave a comment on your Facebook ad. They, they want it addressed, right? They're, they're looking, they expect that you, and they, by the way, they want to address not like a week from now, they want it addressed within the hour, within two hours. And so for me, I think the connection comes with making as many of your customers as you can feel as important as they are to you, right? I, every one of my customers is important. Interestingly enough, um, I saw an order come through. I also get every order notification, which is, I don't know if you can hear my phone buzzing. It's why I tried to move it. Um, but I also see all the orders that, that come through, which is one of the most exciting things for me as a founder. And I saw one come through that I'd seen come through, I don't know, eight or nine times. And I was like, this woman's ordered from us a lot. So I took the initiative and I sent her a note and I said, hi, I'm one of the founders of Noteworthy. I've noticed you've ordered a number of times. I wanted to hear about your experience. And now I have an email chain going with this woman where she's providing me with incredibly valuable feedback about her experience, some of which was good, some of which was less good. And so for me, it's that kind of personalized connection that we're looking to build. Now, I can't email every single one of our customers to thank them, but I can certainly figure out through the number of digital tools that exist, whether it's through customer service tools, whether it's through CRM tools, where is to create that sort of connection and therefore get like, we're going back to that feedback loop and that insight. But to me, that I think is, is one of the most important things that you can build as a brand in today's day and age that, and that's where I think, interestingly enough, digital actually helps, but it's got to feel, it's really got to feel personal, which is one of the reasons I feel like one of our secret weapons is our customer service team who is incredibly personal. Like every email that we get, they answer themselves. There's no automatic response. It's real people behind there, which I think makes a really big difference in a world where people expect to be heard. Hmm, interesting. And in the very early days when you were developing Noteworthy, uh, I'm guessing it wasn't, you didn't get it right on the first try. Uh, I'm guessing there was a lot of hypotheses, a lot of testing that really happened. Can you, can you give us a very brief run on the process? What was, what was your first hypothesis? Why was it wrong? What was the second one? What did you learn, et cetera, et cetera. So in, in other words, how was that, that process for you? Yeah. 
So um, when we started looking at, at Noteworthy, the the thing that sort of has always remained true as we looked at different ways to go to market and what we wanted to do was this um, insight that we had from our own experience. So our own experience between myself and, and my business partner, his name is Luke, and I, I'll tell you about my experience, which I am... Um, I've spent most of my career working in personal care at Unilever, but never really in fragrance, always in hair care or personal wash. So I had some sort of periphery exposure to, uh, to fragrance as a category through that because all of our products have some sort of fragrance in them. But I really got exposure when I did my master's at um, FIT in cosmetics and fragrance marketing. And we took a fragrance uh, class as part of that. And one of the things we had to do was make our own fragrance. And I was like, great. I'm going to make the world's, I'm going to make something designed for me. I'm going to love it. I'm going to mix rose with sandalwood with, I don't remember what else. And I was like, I'm very confident this is going to be fantastic. And I smelled it. And I was like, this could be the worst thing I have ever put up to my nose. Like, and this is me saying, I think I know what I like, which was my first sort of insight to, I actually, as a consumer think I might know what I like because I like the sound of things. I know what I like maybe in my home, but the reality is it's really hard to figure out um, when you're actually coming to the perfume category, if you're a beginner, what you like. Um, and also because even like categorically, you might say, I know I like woody fragrances. I know I like floral. There are so many um, subcategories and combinations within both of them that it can become a very confusing category to shop. My my um, business partner was working at L'Oreal at the time when we sort of um, started talking about Noteworthy and his experience was, you know, he showed up as part of his welcome package was a whole bunch of, of fragrances from the portfolio. And he opened them up and he's like, where do I start? The blue one, the green one, the one that has, you know, um, Johnny Depp as the spokesperson, like, how do I choose? And so sort of our, both of us looking at each other going, well, we're, we're pretty well ingrained in beauty and personal care. And we don't know how to shop this category. Are we the only ones? Which is why we put sort of a call out just on, on LinkedIn and to friends and family saying, hey, can you go take this type form, which is, you know, I, oh, and it was over 600 people ultimately that sort of went in and filled this type form where we came up with some of the facts that we quote now, which are, um, you know, something like 60% of people um, think it's really hard to find a new fragrance and the same number, if not more, really want a signature scent that's unique and different from other people. Um, and then it was something like 83% of people said they want a signature scent that is easy to find that's unique and different. So we were like, okay, there's something here around shopability and around uniqueness, particularly in a category where, you know, the top 10 fragrances have been the top 10 fragrances for who knows how many years. I don't know. And I should have asked you, what's your, or do you wear fragrance? What's your experience in the category? Um, Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely, uh, it's, I mean, it, it really is. It's, um, it's very confusing. It's a very confusing shopping experience for sure. It's very difficult to find your own, uh, your own signature style per se, because there's yeah. so much education that is required to understand what makes a fragrance personal. So at the end of the day, you're just making choices because it's either what everybody wears or what this cool people that you admire wears is not really because you actually want to wear it. Exactly. And the other thing that that we sort of found going through this, which was what all the data played back to us, is the category itself is sort of um, part of the problem. You could go into a store and there's only a certain number of fragrances you can smell. You know, you run out of arm space and testing, trying to remember which, you know, which did I put the green one here, the blue one here, which one is which. But also you experience something called olfactory fatigue, meaning you basically become nose blind after a certain amount. So there's only a certain number you can try at any time. And frankly, you know, shopping online is not much better. Reading, reading fragrance um, descriptions online doesn't really tell you what it's meant to smell like. And so when I go back to sort of like the genesis of Noteworthy, we were like, there's something here in terms of being able to solve the problem. And so we looked at it a couple of different ways. We said, do we want to look at it just as a digital solution? So, um, you know, building, building an algorithm where, um, all, where we're basically the recommendation engine and, and that's the solution. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, um, 
you know, both, both of us being marketers at heart, we sort of said, if that's the solution, then, then we don't really get that connection with a customer. We're not building a meaningful brand. And also like, we don't get to solve through the business model what we know customers really want, which mm. is why we started saying, actually, we, we think we want to develop our own brand, um, which was really only the start because developing our own brand was great. And, and there's lots of iterations of, of what we were going to call it, what it was going to look like. Like I was looking through back some in some historical um photos for for an email campaign the other day and I was looking at the first iterations of our logo and I was just like oh god how did we think that was good but um it it wasn't just about saying well we want to create a brand and we've got this digital solution the other thing that really makes us unique that we had to build into our business model is a lot of this industry is really focused on getting you to invest in um a larger size fragrance format right up front. So 50 mils, 100 mils, that's part of why, you know, they want you to test in store so that you then you buy the big bottle. But one of the things we knew was that um, that's not really how customers want to shop. This is a category where um, you actually want to wear something a few times to see how it works on your skin, how it changes over time, how um, it might layer with what you already like. And so part of what we were developing was a brand, but then part of what we were developing was a business model and an experience that really would sort of circumvent all the issues that people have. So if you go on our site and you take our fragrance finder, which basically we created from all of those 50,000 samples we sent out, we used a lot of the data we got from that. And we worked with the data scientists to create an algorithm that says, if you go online, take the quiz, and we send you four samples from our portfolio, there's an 89% chance you'll find one that you like. So mm -hmm. it comes to your door, you get to try them at home, we give you basically the cost of the kit and a credit towards a future purchase, with the idea that we don't really want to force you to blind buy something at first, we want you to go through four, which is a fairly manageable number of fragrances, um, a high likelihood you'll like probably more than one, but if you find one that's great, but before you then go and invest in a fragrance that you love. And so I think for us trying to figure out that sweet spot between how are we actually solving all the pain points that customers have with the fragrance shopping experience while also creating a brand that people would feel connection to is a lot of what sort of changed over time. And, and the things that I think, um, you know, we think of as being a little bit of this, the special sauce on the brand. So the the nature of the the customer need was always there. The awareness of the problem was always there, but the business model that was best suited to meet that need was the thing that you guys were iterating and testing. Exactly. So it went from being sort of maybe just a software solution to being just a fragrance solution to being this combination of a great digital experience to um, a trial experience, which we know is like one of the number one things our customers love about us is being able to try them at home to then making sure once you find something you like, we're really delivering a fantastic product experience on the fragrance side. Mm. And how much volume do you think you need to come to those accurate decisions at the very, very beginning? How many, how many questionnaires, how many, um, what, what's the number that everybody should be uh, striving for? Like, how, how, how do you actually know that you, you have something that is reliable? Uh, that's a great question because we probably had more data than many entrepreneurs in the beginning, just like in that initial survey of having, you know, 600 people. I tend to think that anything upwards of a hundred, just looking at what I know around statistically significant would give you some confidence level, particularly if it's based on your own um, experience. And I would also say like today, there are so many tools that exist from Google survey to user surveys to I've used um, winter as another sort of like digital survey tool in the past, which are low cost audience, um, validated and a lot of sort of tools for people who are not used to research to figure out how to structure questions so mm. that you're getting unbiased, you know, opinions. You haven't asked me any of your rapid fire questions yet, but I was prepared for one of them, which is, I think one of the things that, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs um, sort of live by is, is follow your passion. And I think that's important, 
But I also think if you're just following your own idea and your own passion, you're really likely to get lost in the delivery around what customers actually want because your own vision gets clouded or gets in the way of sort of that customer feedback piece, which is why, again, for us, connection and, and talking to our customers has been really, really important and something that, you know, we we take as one of the key pillars of us as a business and a brand. Mm, interesting. And can you can you name drop a couple of the most useful tools that you have in your tool belt for that and why? For, for research or in general? Research, since we're speaking about research as oh, being absolutely. the foundation of connection. Yeah. So it's going to sound weird. Typeform. Typeform, I think, is fantastic. We use Typeform even now, and we've used Typeform for any sort of survey that we've done. And I also think Typeform is great because it can be embedded in emails. They've got lots of you know pre-structured surveys. One of the most useful tools I used when I was, because um, I spent some time working in um, a a healthcare tech company that's Canadian based that had both a B2C and a B2B arm. And um, I mentioned Winter, which is W-Y-N-T-E-R. I found Winter to be a really awesome tool. Um, Winter's audiences can either be B2C or B2B if you're looking for different user professionals. They've got a lot of pre-populated templates. And what's great about Winter is the turnaround is super fast. Um, like I was able to get research when we were doing that. It was probably about two years ago now. So I don't know if this has changed drastically, but like we get results in 24 hours um, as we were iterating things, which I thought I thought was pretty awesome. And so we um, that was particularly interesting when we were trying to do qualitative. I also have used Google surveys whenever we just want sort of like quick um feedback on things. One thing I would say about Google surveys is you've got to be careful about audience quality there. But if you're just looking for sort of like a this versus that ABC testing, it's fantastic for getting really quick streamlined feedback. Hmm. Interesting. And what about your first marketing channels? Was it Facebook advertising? Was it all digital? Was it content creation? How focused was your approach? Um, in the beginning, really focused. Um, and there's two reasons for that is one of them is funding, right? Um, funding not only to spend in a channel, but also funding to have the right assets to show up in a channel, right? We all know it's not, it's, well, it can be cheap, but if you're going to create content for Meta or for TikTok or Pinterest or YouTube, like you need content. You can't just say, I'm going to show up and pay for the channel. You need something to put there. But the other reason that it was focused is because in a in a world where you're trying to understand incrementality and value of a channel, for us being able to add and build slowly allowed us to really understand without tons of marketing mix modeling or um, attribution tools, how each channel was working well for us. Hmm. So you know, one of the first things that we leveraged was our sister brand, um, Proven. We we did a lot with their audience. We did, you know, inserts in, in the boxes with Proven. We did um, email campaigns for them. But then the other channel that we were really leaning on in the, in the, towards the middle of 2021 was more, I would say traditional influencer spend, um, that versus now, I think in the past 12 months, we've seen the creator space really change, particularly with the dynamic of TikTok, but we were investing quite a bit in, um, in influencers in the beginning, because we wanted that third party credibility. We knew that, um, word of mouth was going to be really, really critical in building sort of um, the following that we wanted and the connection that we wanted. And frankly, like when you when you partner with influencers and creators, usually you get content that you can then atomize in different ways. So use in emails, use on organic social, use in other places. And so that was really valuable. And then as we started to sort of diversify channels, the next thing we added was paid social, um, which has been really interesting to look at the difference in how meta performs versus TikTok. And then we've started to add on things like search, um, things for us, email is really, really critical. Um, and email is almost, um, not doing its service. Like I, I really think about CRM as being email, SMS loyalty. Um, you know, in an ideal world, your CS function rolls up into there because it's all about sort of customer retention, but that's really how, how we've sort of been looking at that. And we are still, I would say more focused on, more of those sort of, um, you know, bottom of funnel channels. But at some point, 
I, and probably soon sort of looking at what else we want to do on that upper funnel brand building awareness piece will be something I'll be really interested in now that we know sort of like the value and the incrementality each one of these channels adds for us, how we then look at sort of where we want to prioritize the next channel um, is something that's sort of top of mind for me. Mm. And how do you find the right channel for you? Is it purely through testing? Yes. Honestly, yes. Um, mm. I think, well, I think it's through testing. I also think it's where you have a brand and content fit. So, you know, for example, I'm not sure that uh, someone wearing a sandwich board, for example, outside a showroom for us is the right brand fit. Whereas lots of brands and, you know, local franchises deploy that as a tactic. And that's one that's very specific. But part of which what we've been doing is looking at like, where do our customers spend time and where do they spend time looking for education and information related to our category. Mm. One of the things that I learned really on early on in my career um, at Unilever is you do not want to be where customers don't want you to be. So if I'm looking for information on, I'm uh, making this up, um, financial services, because I'm trying to get a will ready, for example. I'm not really thinking about deodorant at that point in time. So having a deodorant ad show up on a financial services website when I'm looking at information that is probably much um, more needs-based in that moment, it's not a fit, right? Whether or not you know, I think you can say that's driving awareness. It's not a good fit for where the customer might be looking for information for you. Showing up on a workout site um, where people are actively thinking about sweating and activity, probably a much better fit. So that's the other thing we've looked at is where our customers actually spending time and open to receiving messages um, from us that make sense to them. Hmm. So again, it goes back to understanding the customer. Yep. Interesting. And how do you prioritize your tests? Because I mean, it's, you can do a thousand different things and doing a thousand different things is going to cost you a lot of money. And it's going to take, it's going to take very, very long. So what's your, what's your decision-making process on understanding what is the most probable channel that you should be using for success? Because again, and this is, this is very, I think this is very relevant now where when you're an entrepreneur, you're, you're, you're trying to choose, right? Okay. What should I choose? Should I choose this opportunity because there's no competition or should I choose this opportunity because there's high potential for connection, even though there's a very high level of competition, right? How, how do you, how do you make those decisions? So I, we've usually looked at it as, um, Competition is a factor in this decision, but it's like level of effort versus potential return, right? Mm. So if I think about an area where there's no competition, where it's low barrier to entry, I have to do almost nothing in terms of content and the spend's really little, great. Why wouldn't I try a little bit, particularly if it's low maintenance? If I go into that space and it requires 10 pieces of content, constant optimization from my team and no proof potentially because competition's not there that it's working, that feels like a lot of investment for potential ROI. Whereas if I look at, all right, this is a place where my competitors are spending some time. They've had limited success. It looks like we could try some stuff and we've got some content already ready to go. Then that's sort of probably more worthwhile in the test. And that's how we make a lot of decisions. It's how we made decisions around, um, we, you know, we first launched uh, our large size fragrances, which I've got here which, you know, are 100 mils. Um, part of what we were getting feedback on right up front was, would be great if you had a smaller, more affordable price point. And we said, oh, that probably makes sense. And so we looked at all the things we could do. We could launch, um, this is 100 mils. We could launch a 50 mil. We could launch um, additional travel sizes. We could launch the rollerballs. And ultimately we had um, created these travel sprays as part of a sampling program that looked like this. And we said, well, What's to stop us from getting a few hundred produced, putting them out on the site and see what happens? And that's what we did. Mm. Um, not a lot of effort for potentially really high return. And we got re learnings really early that this was a format that worked, which we've now scaled up and is a significant part of our mix because we got that learning early on. But to go, for example, and try to create a whole new mold for a different size that would have had really long lead times, a lot of effort for potentially not the same return as being able to do this really, really quickly and really more, much more scrappily. Mm. 
And is that something, is that a reliable principle, no matter what type of marketing channel you're analyzing, or is it, it varies a lot based on, I don't know, your product, the, the type of customer that is asking for it? I mean, I would, in my experience, look, and I've worked in, again, both B2B and B2C, a lot of this is that combination of investment versus time. But I think mm -hmm. the only other factor, particularly as you get bigger, that plays a role is incrementality. Mm -hmm. So as you get bigger, every place you expand, oh, you can only get so much more, you know, juice out of the squeeze, right? Mm -hmm. So then trying to play through which channel do you think, and this is part of the ROI, right? Where do you think the opportunity is the biggest? trying to understand incrementality of each channel, particularly in a day and age when attribution is so complicated given someone's digital journey. That I think is the one piece um, that a, a lot of people are spending a lot of time trying to unlock to make sure that the time and energy they're spending on their on any given channel um, and, and being successful in that channel, right? Because it's not just investment in, it's how you do it. Um, is is really is really adding to the work that they're doing rather than just supplementing a channel they already would have been in. Mm, interesting. So what is the uh, what is the I don't want to say solution, but what is the uh, almost like the reliable principle that everybody can rely on on this within all of this complexity? Is it back to what you said of just continuously having those conversations and acting upon the whatever you're learning from your customers? I think it's that. And then I also think it's having, having a, a good product, having a yeah. product. Yeah. Actually, I was going to say in today's digital landscape, it's talking to your customers. And then I think making sure because there are so many tracking tools available, and we haven't really talked about sort of like the tech stack, but there are lots of ways for you to um, validate what you hear from your customers in terms of their journey. Right. Um, I know GA4 is making it more complicated as they've sort of changed over some of the monitoring there, but there are lots of tools you can use everything from, you know, end of purchase surveys, for example, to validate your channels to what you're seeing in platform as your CPA to tools like source medium, where you can look at um, attribution and sort of revenue that's coming by channel and what you're seeing is your CPAs and CPMs there. So there are actually a, a lot of tools you can use. I think at an MVP level, going back to sort of like that entrepreneur conversation, figuring out um, what is the minimum tech stock that you need to inform um, any tracking that you want to do. So you're not over-investing because in the beginning, you don't need to over-invest, particularly if you're only investing in two or three channels, right? You don't need a massive um, you know, attribution system where you're monitoring those things, but then figuring out how we, what is the right tool to track, whether it's um, surveys, whether it's, uh, you know, apps on, if you're stopping on Shopify, there's lots of different tools on Shopify that do attribution as well. That for me is, is the other thing that sort of supplements this and acts as your source of truth, um, for how impactful each of your marketing channels is. Mm, wow. A very dense conversation. I like that. I like, I like, I like that. It's very, very specific. And I think that marketing is probably one of the biggest challenges for a lot of like startup brands, especially nowadays when marketing has become this Again, this very chaotic, almost like again, it it's it's a very it's a very chaotic sphere right now. There's a lot of things going on, and people need to learn how to be very diligent and focused and disciplined on how to approach the right things. Um, so I think that this very specific conversation is going to help out with them a lot. Now, if 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 you could give anybody a, a, a very a very unique piece of advice that is maybe getting started in this environment where things are difficult, where there's a lot of things that you could be doing, where product development is doing, where there's not a lot of capital. What what would be your piece of advice? I have two. Is that all right? Yeah, yeah for sure. So the first one is don't be afraid. I think like... Um, if you look at the environment that we are operating in right now, it's incredibly easy to um, think to yourself, there's too much to overcome here, too much standing in my way um, to be successful. And I would, this is where it goes back to a little bit of, you don't need to go from zero to a hundred on day one. Um, and figuring out what your roadmap is to test out an idea, 
I think is really critical, which goes to my second piece of advice, which is like map out your hypotheses and figure out how you're going to test them. Cause that's how you're going to figure out really where the barriers to your idea being successful exist, whether it's a great product, whether it's an unmet consumer need, whether it's, um, how you're going to manufacture, like test out, they figure out what are all the questions you have, because then once you have that plan, you can start to map out, okay, how am I going to build this business and be successful and what sort of needs to be true? Because I would say, you know, you, you brought it up earlier, the barriers to entry, particularly for um, D to C have never been lower. The costs have potentially never been higher, but I would also say the opportunity has never been richer than it has been before where you're, the landscape is now such that people want customized, personalized solutions to themselves, which therefore means the market is endless when mm. you look at what someone might want from you. Amazing. Yeah. Very motivational words for a difficult time. And, and for sure. And I know this for sure, because I, I have a lot of conversations with, with the entrepreneurs on this topic. And I think that it is the biggest challenge now is it's not really sure. It's 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 more personal and it's motivational. I think that people are very scared or very. See, I don't think scared is the right word. They're not very motivated to jump into these industries at this particular moment in time. So hopefully, conversations like this will help them sort of like get get those fears, get that get that motivation issue, or get those um those uh, oh I'll leave it for later when times are easier conversations out of their minds because again, it's 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 irrelevant really. Well, one of the most, and I, I, I heard this somewhere and I'm going to, I'm going to butcher it, but it was something like, um, daydreamers love, uh, the, or daydreamers do the work they love. People that are successful learn to love the work. Hmm. And I think like, that's really interesting as I, as I go back to sort of the point I made earlier around like following your passion. I love fragrance. There are a lot of things I do on a daily basis that make me so excited and passionate, but there are lots of things that are hard, right? And actually like learning to love the parts that are unglamorous, that are challenging, that are stressful as being an entrepreneur has actually been a whole nother skill set that I've had to learn. And one that I think makes me appreciate a lot of things outside of work even more because you know, every every moment I spend thinking about my business, which is a lot, is a moment I'm not spending you know, thinking about my kids, thinking about my husband, thinking about myself, thinking about, you know, other larger um, world changing topics. And so I think like um, the advice that I, that I would give to people is there are parts of this that are awesome. There are parts of this that are unawesome and figuring out um, how you love all of it is, is really the challenge. And if you can, it's so rewarding. Interesting. So you have to love the kids that don't give you any trouble, but you also have to learn to love the kids that do give you a lot of trouble. <laughs> and that's what I say to my husband every night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, wow. Awesome, Ashley. Well, very educational conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing all that valuable information. I hope we can have it again sometime in the future. Oh, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time.